Hi, and welcome back to the Utojua Hujui podcast. Now, a quick word before we get in. Your girl, Aileen, has a little bit of a potty mouth, which means she does not mind her language and she speaks the fluent French, <laughs> um, which is all to say that I understand that some people are a little bit uncomfortable with this language. So here's just a warning for you. If, however, you are not uncomfortable and you would like to learn about the world around you and capitalism and colonialism and just like... All this fun shit with a dazzling, brilliant, and funny host, if I do say so myself. Um, keep listening. Hi, ho, hello, and welcome back to the Utojua Hujui podcast with your girl Aileen. The show where we learn that the only true god is capitalism. And I understand that might be a controversial statement. However, in our modern society, can you not say that, like, we are somewhat obsessed with the idea of capital and money? And to the point where we have tried to justify this obsession by linking it back to God. When God, like when even Jesus himself was like, look, you can't serve two masters and like money is the root of all evil, boo. So I don't know. I just, I, I'm just getting real tired of this, of this socioeconomic system, which I am currently trapped in. I'm getting real tired of feeling like both, like I have no future, but also very cognizant of the fact that I'm incredibly privileged. And as a result of that privilege, I am damn near obliged to do something with it. Otherwise, it, it's just a fucking waste. So enough of my, you know, champagne anxieties and like first world problems, I suppose. And let's get into this show now usually i reserve this next section for what i like to call my therapy hour with y'all like i know i don't pay you guys i know that you know you're kind of like a captive audience here because like you don't know how long i go on for um and i don't tell (laughs) y'all but i've decided this time i'm gonna i'm gonna give you guys a bit of a break um i had wanted to talk about electoral politics and about how it makes absolutely no sense but i've I've already recorded my thoughts on that somewhere else i'll just link them in the description wherever the description is wherever you're listening but tldr electoral politics no longer serve the purpose for which they were invented or you know for literally and rather ironically or fittingly democratized um electoral politics were supposed to be a way for informed citizens to make a choice about the direction of their country and to make a judgment on 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 the performance of their leaders and i think for like a lot of reasons including for example the fact that like there's not much competition in politics anymore because of something called accumulated accumulated advantage or the matthew effect um that electoral politics we need to really reconsider how we do it maybe from a procedural perspective maybe instead of doing a first past the post system we do ranked choice voting maybe is maybe we also add the um a none of the above option on the ballot um, I, I don't know. I just something needs to change because I like democracy. I value its values. I have greatly benefited from the idea and the promise of democracy. Like people have literally died so that I would be able to vote somewhat freely. Um, but I also think that we need to reconsider um, and, and, and because of the sacrifices I meant to say, I definitely think that we should reconsider um you know what democracy is and and really what we ought to be doing 
about it and and, and with it um anyway um like i said i could go on and on that's not that's that that is not the point today you are here for something else you are here for operation blackwash but before we get there you know what kind of podcast this is it is a drink friendly or substance friendly podcast however the official utajul hujui line is that you should only imbibe and indulge in that which is legal and safe for you to do so, of course. So please prioritize your safety, prioritize legality. That is the official line, okay? Having said all this, having given all that caveat, having covered my ass, what am I drinking today? Well, today I am drinking a lovely, gorgeous, steaming cup of tea. But that also doesn't mean that I'm sober, <laughs> nor am I drunk. <laughs> no, but seriously though, like, I am actually just drinking my tea and it is, it is, it is wonderful. So, let's get into it. As you know, today we are going to be talking about Operation Blackwash. And this episode was inspired by another podcast I listened to called Behind the Bastards. Honestly, go check it out. The host, Robert Evans, is actually quite funny and really, really good at conveying information in a, in a, in a simple yet engaging way. Anyway, so he does this episode on US uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, um, Uncle Tom, as, as I like to save him in my mind and he talked about how like in the 60s and 70s Clarence Thomas was associated with um, African-American people who supported and advocated on the behalf of the apartheid uh, government in South Africa and I literally was like wait 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 what the fuck hold hold up hold up hold up hold up you mean to tell me you mean to you mean to tell me that at the height of apartheid in South Africa, when the Sharpeville massacre and the Soweto uprisings were taking place, when the entire world was beginning to turn its back on the nation, there were African Americans who were transitioning themselves into the next stage in the fight for civil rights after having dismantled legal segregation in their country. Those same African Americans backed the South African government and tried to get their community to do the same. They, these African Americans backed a government that did the same sh- is doing the same shit to people that look like them as, as their government did to them. And like this, 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 Okay, I I want to say that it broke me, but not quite. I just don't understand how you could do this, right? Because I've really struggled with 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 a, with a personality called Candace fucking Owens. Like her name is Candace Owens. Um, she is an African American woman who is a mouthpiece for the right. Um, and she says some really stupid shit. And and like I always thought that what she was doing was new. Um, but it turns out that nah, she was just doing a revival. Um, so let's talk about Operation Blackwash and like how exactly the South African government convinced black people to turn their back on their own. And we need to start at the very beginning. Um, I'm going to talk about the origins of apartheid and a man by the name of Cecil Rhodes. <laughs> now, I am not his biggest fan. I'm just, I'm just not. The man was a consummate white supremacist and it is on record. 
Mm, actually, that's not a fair assessment. He wasn't a white supremacist in our modern understanding of the word, as much as he was like an English culture supremacist. He believed that the Anglo-Saxon people or race or culture were the best tip-top fucking people on the planet. Once saying, and I quote, I contend that we are the first race in the world and that the more of the world we inhabit, the better it is for the human race. End quote. He is the kind of English supremacist that wanted to recolonize the United States of America, which by his time had been independent for nearly a century. He once asked, and I quote, why should we not form a secret society with but one object, the furtherance of the British Empire and the bringing of the whole world under British rule, for the recovery of the United States, for the making of the Anglo-Saxon race but one empire, end quote. Now, there are those who argue that uh, Rhodes was not a racist uber-colonizer. Rhodes himself once said that he, and I quote, could never accept the position that we should disqualify a human being on the account of his color, end quote. After working, he said this, he said that, after working to disenfranchise Black South Africans by raising the financial qualifications for voting and it's essentially instituting what was in practice a color bar that would be the precedent for apartheid. I can't, who I cannot explain to you how much I just do not like this man. My goodness. Now, all this is important to remember because Cecil Rhodes, as I said, is the architect of apartheid. Before his involvement in the construction of South Africa's state architecture, the colony that was governed by British liberalism, or rather it was governed by this idea that all persons irrespective of color were equal by the law. Like I know, I know it doesn't make sense given what we know about the British Empire, but honestly it was the case like the british people back in the day and i guess even now love to think of themselves as like a law-abiding people and like one of the gifts it gave to the early cape colony was this idea that like we are all equal before the law to the point where before cecil rhodes stepped in and did his rhodesy shit there was like no color bar when it came to voting in the cape colony a black person could vote before cecil rhodes after cecil rhodes well well, let's just say that shit did not get easier. Ah, la, 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 la. But the further you went into, into South Africa, the further you went away from the Cape, um, in the hinterlands, and especially in the mining centers, black South Africans were mistreated, killed, and subjugated with reckless abandon. And Rhodes is one of the men, if not the man responsible, for extending this treatment in the hinterlands of the interior of South Africa to the rest of the fucking colony. Although it is important to note that uh, Robert Rotberg, Yes, Robert Rotberg. I know, I, I'm trying. I really, Robert Rotberg, Rhodes's most thorough biographer, the guys who knows this man the best, agrees with the assessment that he laid the groundwork and the foundation for apartheid. He writes, and I quote, It is not wholly unfair to suggest that Rhodes's legislative victories provided essential precursors to apartheid. End quote. Quoting now from Oxford University's William Beinart, and I quote, Rhodes contributed to restricting the vote for black people in the Cape Colony. The Cape was granted representative self-government in 1853 with a non-racial qualified franchise. 
Rhodes supported two major limitations. The first in 1887, when Sprigg was prime minister, excluded land held in communal or customary tenure from the proprietary qualifications for the franchise. Very few whites held their land in this way, but most Africans in the colony did so. The second in 1892, when Rhodes was in office as prime minister, raised the property qualifications and induced and, and introduced an educational qualification. This applied to all voters, men only, but had the effect of excluding a higher proportion of black people, end quote. Together, the measure in 1887 and 1892, these worked to disenfranchise black South Africans. The 1887 Act reduced African voters by 40%. Though the numbers had rebounded by 1891 due to registration efforts, the 1892 Act reduced voters by over 20%. By 1895, the number of African South African voters or black South Africans had dropped 30% compared to 1886. By 1910, only 15% of the voters in the Cape were non-white, with the majority being coloured, which is neither black nor white people. This is at a time when black South Africans made up 75% of the population. For Rhodes, this made sense. It was his attempt to fulfil the white man's birth. Then, in 1887, Rhodes said, and I quote, either you have to receive them on an equal footing as citizens or to call them a subject race. Well, I have made up my mind that there must be a class legislation that we have got to treat natives when they are in a state of barbarism in a different way to ourselves. We are to be lords over them. Treat the natives as a subject people as long as they continue to be in a state of barbarism and communal tenure, end quote. And I really wish I had the time to explore Rhodes' association between barbarism or like savagery and, and, and being uncivilized. That idea and the idea of communal tenure, i.e. not private property, but like unfortunately we just we just don't have the time. Um, instead, we will turn to someone who does not see Rhodes' policies as inherently racist. The scholar's name is Nigel Bigger. I know, Nigel Bigger, and he wrote in response to Bynath's article in 2021. Um, now, let me tell you why I completely disagree with Nigel. Now, uh, Bigger's primary argument is that Rhodes wasn't really racist. He just believed that the Africans were at a lower state of cultural development, and as a result of this status, they could not be trusted to govern themselves and must be kept separate from the more civilized Anglo-Saxons. Bigger writes that Beinart, and I quote, overlooks the crucial qualification that Rhodes has made. Treat the natives as a subject people as long as they continue in a state of barbarism and communal tenure. The clear implication is that Rhodes considered Black Africans equally capable of cultural development, only temporarily subordinate and not naturally or biologically inferior, end quote. But, and here's the thing with Bigger's argument, like, I really disagree with. Um, he does not explore why Rhodes felt he had the right to pass judgment on other cultures or why Rhodes felt he had the right to declare a culture developed or not. Or like why Rhodes thought the Anglo-Saxon culture and their level and their mode of development was, was to be the yardstick upon which all other cultures must be judged. Or why in Rhodes's mind, civility had a distinctly white connotation. Even when Bigger explains um, Rhodes's pro-segregationalist policies um, as as a way of um, 
politically catering to the Afrikaners, Bigger does not explore why Rhodes felt it was okay to sacrifice Black South Africans at the altar of Afrikaner narcissism and feelings of superiority. It seems that Bigger did not want to discuss the big-ass elephant in the room, which was Rhodes's racism and supremacist views. Like, for example, in 1892, when an interracial cricket uh, was, was still possible, the English team captain spotted an exceptionally talented uh, a black South African by the name of Hendricks. The captain was so impressed by this guy that he like that, that he basically went to the government and was like, hey, I want to take this Hendricks guy back to England, like we'll train with him, or like we, we, we can actually do something great. But the government refused to let Hendricks go. Permission was denied by William Milton, Rhodes's private secretary and future administrator of Rhodesia. Yeah, Rhodes got a country named after him, which is just peachy. Um, speaking on the incident later, Rhodes said, and I quote, they wanted me to send a black fellow called Hendricks to England, but I would not have it, end quote. Neither, like, but why would you not have it, Mr. Rhodes? It just, why not? Anyway, <sighs> like, Bigger also doesn't address Ro like what Rhodes said in his inaugural speech as prime minister in 1900. He said, and I quote, at any rate, if the whites maintain their position as the supreme race, the day may come when we shall all be at, when we shall all be thankful that we have the natives with us in their proper position to find certain locations for them where without any right or title to the land, they are herded together, end quote. Meanwhile, the land that was ours, the land that you came, you saw us using, you had to like trick us through fucking treaties out of this land because you recognize it is not yours. You have I'm sorry. Just I'm sorry. I'm I, I apologize. I just really don't understand why people are still invested in trying to paint Cecil Rhodes as like fundamentally not a racist. I don't understand why you would dedicate so much time and effort of your academic and career and like intellectual labor attempting to justify and explain away this man's racism when it is as clear as day. Like even if his words weren't enough, which they should be, actions speak louder than words and he created the architecture that would become apartheid. Like I don't, I, it is like, how can you be so invest? Okay. Okay. Sorry. Okay, anyway, in 1894, Cecil Rhodes proposed the Glen Gray Act. Before this, or rather before this, he had expressed his approval of keeping the races physically separate. He said, and I quote, My idea is that the natives should be kept in these natives' reserves and not be mixed with the white men at all. Are you going to sanction the idea with all the difficulties of the poor whites before us that white children grow up in the middle of native locations? End quote. The Glen Gray Act mobilized African workers by instituting a labor tax on every single man. This was a poll tax that was added on top of the existing hot tax and was supposed to motivate Africans to work in the mines where there was a shortage of labor. Now, quoting from Beinart, and I quote, the act also introduced councils paid for by an additional tax on Africans, which created a segregated system of local government in districts where African people were in, were in the great majority, end quote. Now, at every point, Black South Africans resisted and protested. In response to the Glen Grey Act, 50,000 men revolted, and they were met with brutal repression from the state. Rhodes, is, like, Rhodes died before the system of, re of reservations that he 
argued for were fully implemented. Still, he successfully distilled and destroyed the British notion of equality before the law to provide the justifications for a white supremacist state. The 1894 Glengarry Act became the 1913 Natives Land Act, which was the true grandfather of apartheid. The Natives Land Act barred African land ownership and made it illegal for them to buy and sell land and removed the African voting franchise. The act also barred or prevented black people from farming on white owned land. And given the fact that like the act also prevented black people from owning land, it basically meant that as a black person, you could not farm, even if it was to live for yourself, even if it was just for your household, you could not farm on any land because white people owned all the land. And as a result, the Glen Gray Act had the effect of forcing black people into wage employment. Now, this state of economic, social, and political servitude would remain quasi-legal until 1948, when it was fully legalized by the National Party government. The idea was to have separate but equal services. But if you already believe that Africans are inferior to you, then like you're not really incentivized to give them services that are the, the like are the quality that you are getting for yourself. Um, for example, or like it doesn't really even make sense for you to conceptualize of equality in the same way. So now before I go on, I would like to apologize for like giving you a Sparks Note version of apartheid. Like, God, remember Sparks Notes? Um, anyway, um, there is so much to discuss and unpack about apartheid, and all you're getting from me is a brief, very brief overview. So, in South Africa, apartheid was operationalized by over 300 laws, but I will discuss a few of the pillars on which it rested, starting with Prohibitions of Mixed Marriages Act in, of 1949. This act prohibited marriage or a sexual relationship between whites and non-whites, and is the reason why Trevor Noah's autobiography is called Born a Crime. It was one of the first pieces of legislation following the rise of the National Party, and it says a lot that this particular thing was, was was forbidden because it represents a massive invasion of privacy and a massive attempt to ensure or perpetuate the separation of, of, of the races, right? Because if they're not intermarrying, they're not intermingling, they're ha basically keeping to themselves, then, th then, th then there will never ever be a situation where like they might be able to see eye to eye or like work together. Um, it is a way of perpetuating apartheid through like social engineering. Now, um, and it, and also it was a massive invasion of privacy. Like, after all, how else will the government know who I am sleeping with if I don't tell them? Nah, it means like they're going through my messages, they're following me home, like they're tapping my phones, like all that shit. Um, this act even applied to all mixed marriages between South Africans. So even if you got married in Kenya where interracial relationships were legal, that marriage would not be recognized in South Africa. Next, we go to the Population Registration Act which registered people according to their racial group. Now, this enabled those famous passbooks and would inform others on how to treat you. This act was therefore the backbone of apartheid. And then after that, we have the Group Areas Act of 1950, which physically separated the races, especially in urban areas. In a similar vein, we have the Nature Resettlement Act of 1954, which authorized the government to force out long-term residents and knock down buildings to make room for white-owned homes and businesses. This destroyed entire neighborhoods and forced black South Africans to live in squalor and underdevelopment. 
Now, this system of forced relocation was aided by the promotion of Bantu Self-Government Act of 1959, which forced different racial groups to live apart from each other. This act also got rid of black spots inside white areas by moving all black people outside of a city. And remember that since black South Africans could not own land, they were all paying, this meant that they were all paying rent to a white landlord. And to pay this rent, many had to work for white business owners. And all this furthered black South African dependence upon white economic power. Most importantly, the Bantu Self-Government Act also created 10 homelands for black South Africans known as Bantu Stans. From facing history, and I quote, while the apartheid state portrayed the Bantu Stans as a system that offered black South Africans independence, giving the appearance of self-government, the leaders of the homelands were appointed by the apartheid state. By making black South African citizens of Bantustans, the government deflected any possible criticisms of refusing them the right to vote in South Africa. But this arrangement also very deliberately created a system of migrant labor, since the homeland areas were which were mostly rural and underdeveloped, offered inhabitants very few op employment opportunities. Most had to search for work in cities and live temporarily in townships, end quote. Yeah, this is this is a lot. Um, so now, like between 1948 and 1970, the South African government was able to paper over the criticisms of this very racist, very white supremacist system. That was until news of the Soweto uprising leaked to the rest of the world. In June 1976, the South African government mowed down thousands of children protesting for the use of the colonizers' language in their curriculum, Afrikaans. The police fired wantonly, killing 200, inclu including 13-year-old Hector Peterson. And at this point, the world couldn't turn away any longer, and they had to start, you know, reconsidering whether or not it was worth the diamonds and the uranium and the gold and, like, all the minerals, whether it was worth... Uh, engaging in or interfacing with the South African government anymore. Um, and at this point, people also started withdrawing investments and reducing the amount of aid South Africa was going to receive. Now, to stop this from happening, the South African government had to get creative. It was no longer enough that white people were given this government a thumbs up. Of course, they would give this government, a white supremacist government, a thumbs up. They were guaranteed preferential treatment in South Africa. So to truly sell apartheid, the South African government needed new mouthpieces. These mouthpieces must not only be able to shield them rhetorically, but also symbolically. A classic two birds with one stone. This was the idea behind Operation Blackwash. Operation Blackwash was a part of the apartheid government's wider effort to improve its image internationally. Now, this program or project or whatever you want to call it, maybe like a scheme or something, um, was serviced at a cost of about $100 million per year. Now, this involved the program, involved lobbying governments around the world. It also meant like using South Africa's virtual monopoly on diamonds to convince countries to look the other way. And sometimes it really meant like being honest enough to pitch your country as you know we have low-cost labor that is easily controlled and it's like very low stress come on through you'll be able to like produce whatever you want at a very low cost um but operation blackwash was like weird it was it was very weird because it kind of makes sense in like a fighting fire with fire kind of way so to understand why I'm saying this we need to like back the fuck up like back it up like a dumper truck back it it 
up. We need to like go back to the 1910s and in the 1920s and like look at the African Americans and what they were doing in their civil rights struggle at that moment. Now, within this time period, these activists realized two things. That first, and as MLK said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So fighting, this meant that fighting against white supremacy in the US wouldn't be enough because white supremacy still existed outside of the US. One, fucking with people that look like them and two, capable of reinfecting the Americas. This led to the second realization that because injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, we need to support anti-colonial and anti-racist efforts all around the world. That is the only way that we as African Americans fighting for our rights and our freedoms and our liberties in the U.S. can prevail against white supremacy. We need to deny it the oxygen and the room to spread, choking it out in essence. I swear that like, like the, there's a sex joke there, but it's just it's just not coming. <laughs> okay, okay, for real though, for real though, for real though. Okay, that is why in like the 1950s and 60s, a bunch of NAACP lawyers came to Africa to help in the constitution making process. Like speaking for Kenya, Thurgood Marshall, yes, the Thurgood Marshall, like Brown versus Board of Education, Thurgood Marshall, like the zaddy that was in the Supreme Court. Marshall, that guy, came to Kenya and helped us write our constitution. It's also why, like, this realization that, like, we need to fight white supremacy everywhere and elevate black people everywhere. It's what led the AANCP to support scholarship efforts and programs for brilliant African students. Some Kenyans that left and came back included Wangari Madhai, George Saitoti, our um, a vice president, Leah Marungu, and Barack Obama Sr. Yes, the father to Barack Obama Jr., who was the first African-American president of the U.S. You see, it, it's all connected. Now, returning to South Africa, supporting anti-racist efforts for the African-Americans within, within the U.S. meant supporting the fight against apartheid as part of their wider fight against colonialism and white supremacy in general. It was that simple. Quoting now from, from Rebecca Davis, and I quote, the International Committee on African Affairs, later the Committee on African Affairs, or CAA, was set up at the time to act on the problem of apartheid. Its vice chair was a renowned black sociologist, W.E.B. Du Bois, or Du Bois? Du Bois. The CAA's co-founder was a man called Max Jurgen, who was one of the most eminent black Americans of his time. Jurgen spent 14 years living in South Africa, during the course of which he helped to politically coach a young Goban Becky, but Jurgen would abandon his pro-equality principles in a bizarre fashion. Following a leadership struggle in the CAA, during which Jurgen was accused of being behind various financial irregularities, he left the organization in 1948 and almost immediately underwent a complete transformation, going from a committed opponent of colonialism to a rabid anti-communist and defender of white-led governments in Africa. For his willingness to sing the praises of apartheid government, Jurgen was granted honorary white status by the national government in South Africa. During the 1950s and 60s, the South African Foundation, a business group with close links to the government, brought Jurgen to South Africa repeatedly to help promote the policy of separate development, which he did even while his white wife was denied permission to travel around South Africa with him, end quote. Now, there is a lot to unpack here. Now, and I mean that. Like, first, let's start with Jurgen. 
What in God's good grace would motivate an anti-racist, white, anti-white supremacist man who had experienced the early days of apartheid for himself to, as Missy Elliott has so eloquently put it before, put his hand down, flip it and reverse it. Especially as like in your advocacy and you're going around like propagating and advocating for the, for the South African government, literally blackwashing their crimes, your own spouse is not allowed to travel with you. Like, do you not understand how fucked up that is? Or maybe you do. Like, I, I just don't know what happened and I can only speculate. Like, perhaps he realized that fighting against those in power is hard and he was tired. Like, power to him. Being an activist is not easy and it's quite difficult. Um, or perhaps Jürgen realized that he wanted to experience power for himself and realized that to do that, he would need to serve the interests of power. I mean, he kind of reminds me of Cypher in The Matrix, um, the guy who betrayed Neo, Trinity and Morpheus, because for him, life outside the Matrix was worse compared to life inside the Matrix. He preferred the illusion to reality. Now, it's also entirely possible that like Jürgen's flipped as a matter of simple economics, like he, he would be making more money as a pro-apartheid activist than as an anti-racist one. Like at the end of the day, to be honest, we don't know. But his ideological shift, like what he turned into after seizing his anti-racist activism and, and this association of like um, being an anti-communist with being a white supremacist, that like joining of ideologies is not the first time it happened. Like as we continue with this episode, you will realize uh, that a lot of the people, a lot of the black men that I was able to find who advocated and um, advertised the South African apartheid government and literally tried to, as I've said, blackwash their crimes were also fervent anti-communists. And I just don't understand how your hatred and or fear of a socio-political system can cause you to support the subjugation of people that look like you like i i just don't understand especially because like you yourself would never be willing to live in that country and put up with that treatment so i just like i just anyway i'm getting ahead i'm getting ahead of myself now uh to be honest like we like with regard to jürgen we just don't know um the guy whose book Selling Apartheid informs the next episode, next section of this episode, his name is Ron Nixon. Um, he doesn't tell us why you're going to flip either. Um, he doesn't even speculate, which is really frustrating. But he does explore why the next crop of African-American civil rights activists flipped to Selling Apartheid. And it has a lot to do with communism and the Cold War, as I have said. This now takes us to where we were like 10-ish, maybe 20-ish minutes ago with the Soweto uprising. Those harrowing photos of Hector Peterson dead and like being carried in the arms of a family member who was running with abject horror on their and terror on their face, away from what we can only presume is a literal killing field. And in response to this image, the international community has now turned its back on South Africa. To rehabilitate its image, the government hired the services of a man called Andrew T. Hatcher. He was a 53-year-old vice president of an advertising firm in New York, and he was a man of 
first, like really quite remarkable. Quoting now from Nixon, and I quote, Hatcher, a former editor of the San Francisco Sun Reporter, had made history over a decade earlier when he, had, when he was hired as the first black member of the White House press staff serving as a deputy press aide to President Kennedy. His presence on the team helped Kennedy in his efforts to appeal to Black American voters in particular, whose support provided the margin of victory over Richard Nixon in a closely contested election. After Kennedy ascended to office, Hatcher was appointed deputy press secretary, the first Black deputy press secretary in history." End quote. It's clear, like given give, given this man's stats, the South African government had hoped to use his status to deny that the government was racist and a white supremacist who's in like, yeah, it was like I said, it, it was literally blackwashing. Um, and you have to hand it to the apartheid government, like albeit begrudgingly, um, because this is quite brilliant in terms of strategy. It is quite brilliant because it's quite easy to call bull if a white guy is saying something isn't racist. I'm like less inclined to believe them. Um, but if it's a person of color saying that something is not racist, then it's a lot harder to call them out on their bullshit. Um, and, but if, but like, for example, let's say you do call them out on it and you challenge their assessment of events, especially if you're a white person doing that calling out, then, the, then like as a person in power by virtue of your race, then it just looks like you know better and that you're overwriting the experiences of a black person. And this was Hatcher's argument. When presented with the concrete evidence of naked white supremacy of the apartheid government, Hatcher, as Davis writes, and I quote, claimed that the true racists were white liberals who thought they knew what was best for the blacks. And the annoying thing is that there is a kernel of truth in what we are saying. So like we need, what he's saying rather, so like we need to like stop, collaborate and listen because we need to actually think, like really consider what he's saying right there. Now, Look, I have love for white liberals. I really do. Like y'all, for the most part, are very well-meaning. But some of you have a tendency to speak over the voices of people of color and you kind of stop when it becomes inconvenient for you. For example, let's meet Stacy, a white liberal. Um, she has a hashtag BLM on her Twitter bio. She has participated in all the marches. She frequently donates money to LGBTQIA plus funds and has supported networks. She has participated in voter registration drives, etc., etc. One day, Stacey decides that she wants to solve the problem of Black intergenerational wealth. The reality that, you know, Black families are, on average, poorer than their white counterparts and have far less household wealth to pass on to the next generation. But instead of listening to community leaders on how to resolve this issue, Stacy, a white liberal, decides that the solution is getting more people to work. Not improving the school systems, not upgrading public infrastructure or transportation, not improving zoning laws, not establishing green spaces, not increasing access to financial services or affordable housing. Nope. The answer to the problem of black intergenerational wealth and income inequality as a factor of of, of like structural racism in the US, the answer to all of this is, according to Stacey, is get people more jobs. She does not consult with community leaders and just instead goes to implement her plan with reckless abandon, right? And like, this is what Hatcher was talking about because it was happening and it is still happening a lot. Um, as LLK said in 1967, and I quote, most whites in America, including many of goodwill, proceed from the premise that equality is a loose expression for improvement. White America is not even psychologically organized to close the gap. Essentially, it seeks only to make it less painful 
painful and less obvious, but in most respects retain it." End quote. So Hatcher really wasn't even like advancing a new school of thought. By the 1970s, he was piggybacking off a rich vein of anti-racist thought and ideology. And it is incredibly compelling as a counter argument to like white supremacist government of South Africa, because like a majority of the countries who the government was like more inclined to listen to were white. And now you have this black person coming up to these white governments and saying, who do you think you are? You think you know better than people on the ground? The people on the ground are saying it's fine. Like, why aren't you trusting them? Kind of, you know, uh, gaslighting bullshit. Um, and but here's the issue with this counter argument. Is it relevant to the crimes of the apartheid government? No, no, it is not right? Because those crimes are happening in fact. It is not a matter of opinion. It's not a matter of like who's delivering the message. No, it is a factual thing that the apartheid government was causing a lot of harm, which is why ultimately Hatcher's counter argument is bullshit. Now, to muddy the, the waters even further, Hatcher organized conferences where black businesses and corporations were encouraged to invest in South Africa. He also set up trips for black journalists, those that could be trusted to report the truth so that they could see for themselves that it wasn't that bad. And I'll quote from Ron Nixon to tell you what happened when one journalist refused to color within the lines, so to speak. Now, and I quote, Hatcher's signature moment as a representative for the apartheid government came in June 1976 on NBC's Today Show when he debated George Hauser, a white anti-apartheid activist who had founded the American Committee on Africa, an organization that pushed for sanctions against South Africa. Hauser said that the violence in South Africa was escalating because of the government's continuing exclusion of blacks from power. Hatcher, who appeared on the show to defend the South African government, disagreed. He said that the violence in South Africa was waning because the government was committed to changing apartheid laws and allowing blacks greater participation in politics and business. He said, and I quote, before accepting the South African account, I wanted to see the situation myself, and it is encouraging. Um, he told the television audience that he wanted to save black South Africans from the George Houses of the world, implying that Hauser was one of those white liberals who thought that they knew what was best for blacks. A stunned Hauser replied, to see a black man defending South Africa for money is not unlike seeing a Jew hired by the Nazis. End quote. Sheesh, that's powerful. Anyway. So moving on, Nixon also recalls an incident where while Hatcher was in a cab being driven by like a black South African driver and he was chauffeuring somebody else around, um, the cab driver, like upon hearing Hatcher, like defending the South African government, was stunned naturally and basically said, bro, what the fuck? Are you with the government? And Hatcher said he was. And the driver just like shook his head in disgust. And that just, if that ain't, mm, if that... I like I understand why that reaction was as reserved as it was because had that driver been any more violent or been any more explicit or expressive with their frustration they would have been in a lot of trouble because the government was going to come and stick a foot up their ass for fucking with one of their assets which is Hatcher as successful a propagandist as Hatcher was, the apartheid government did not put all its egg in his basket. They also hired a man by the name of Jay Parker to bring it back to the beginning. This is the guy that the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas was buddies with. 
Jay Parker. Now, Parker's job, like Hatcher's, was to monitor coverage of the apartheid government and be proactive in countering the obviously negative coverage. Parker was also a protege of Max Jurgen, the guy who pulled a Missy Elliott, took that thang, flip it, and reverse it. But Parker was less effective than either Jurgen or Hatcher because he did not have status among um, civil rights activists and the political consciousness of African-Americans. In fact, most people disliked him intensely. And to help you gauge or understand just how intensely he was disliked, I would like you for a moment to think about Dolores Umbridge from the Harry Potter series. Um, she, and I do not like using this word, especially as it pertains to women, she is a bitch. Like, I am sorry, Dolores Umbridge can go fucking do one. Like, her and the horse she rode in on. Oh, my, I have never hated a person, real or fictional, more than I have hated Dolores Umbridge. My. Anyway, point is, people disliked Jay Parker with the intensity and same ferocity that Harry Potter fans dislike Dolores Umbridge. And it makes sense. It fucking tracks. For example, in 1980, he opposed a federal holiday for Martin Luther King Jr. because MLK had criticized the Vietnamese, the war in Vietnam, and in so doing, according to Parker, um, had given his full support to the North Vietnamese communists. Now, Parker's um, assessment of MLK's position is a wee bit fucked up. A wee bit fucked up because by the 1980s, at least according to my reading of history, a lot of Americans knew about the Pentagon Papers that showed that, like, the American soldiers, the American military machinery had absolutely no business being in Vietnam. A lot of people were aware of things like the My Lai Massacre and the horrific war crimes that the American soldiers had committed in Vietnam. And a lot of American society was very well aware of the consequences of that war. So, so to deny a civil rights hero um, a recognition for his work because of his right, like rightly justified um, opposition to that war is fucking bananas, fucking bananas to me. Now, Parker would also attack the African National Congress and even fought with civil rights activists because of their anti-apartheid activism. In 2009, Parker justified himself and his pro-apartheid activism in his biography, the fantastically named Courage to Put My Country Above color and if that don't tell you what kind of man this is i don't know what will because at no point has this country ever extended him the same courtesy i am being serious when has the united states of america of america ever put country above color no it's always been color and then country uh anyway so like in this fantastically named book parker trying to like explain why it was that he as an as a, as, as a black person was supporting the apartheid government explained that his support for the government was rooted in his anti-communist activism just like his mentor max jurgen you see you, you see you see you see these connections anyway for both parker and jurgen south africa was a capitalist bulwark or rather a capitalist defender um against the soviet backed groups like the anc or countries flirting with communism like angola for parker south africa falling to communism was worse than what was happening to the black people of that country at which point i just 
I just want to say, or rather ask to Mr. Parker, this man who is a who, who is an avowed and avid anti-communist activist, would he be willing to live in the conditions of South Africa as a black person? Because if the answer is yes, and I suppose at least he's being ideologically consistent and I can respect that. But if the answer is no, and he's just trying to find a way to justify really shitty behavior, then you are a horrible person, Mr. Parker, um, because I firmly believe that you would not accept that treatment that that was um, being dished out to black people in South Africa. If, if you were living there, I feel like you would fight. There's no way you, even with your ideology, would be would, would, would be willing to accept that. Now, or at least perhaps I'm projecting, perhaps because there's no way I'd be willing to accept that treatment. I'm projecting that uh, Parker would also resist that treatment. But I don't know. Maybe he is a diehard. Maybe he would. Maybe it wasn't all about money. I, I, I don't know. But we now need to talk about whether or not it was worth hiring black people to defend a white supremacist government. Um, did it stop? people from divesting out of South Africa? And did it help the government hold on to that last patch of white in their otherwise blood-stained tapestry? No. No, of course it didn't. No. Um, by the late 1980s, it was clear that the propaganda campaign just, just wasn't working. At home, the unrest continued while the international clamor for the release of Nelson Mandela kept South Africa on everyone's naughty list. In the US, President Reagan opposed sanctions, which, you know, fucking tracks. But thankfully, Reagan was outvoted by Congress and the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act was passed. This act motivated American businesses to completely divest from South Africa. And this was very bad news. Now, at the time, American direct investment in, in South Africa amounted to $2.3 billion, or about $7.2 billion today, according to the State Department. Additionally, American companies held virtual monopolies in key sectors of the South African economy. According to Sheila M. Hopkins, the U.S. firms held a 50% market share in the automobile industry, a 41% market share in petroleum, a 65% share in computers, and on and on and on it goes. So for the U.S. to divest out of South Africa was a big fucking deal. For the government, it meant that the game was up. So, did the apartheid government throw the baby out with the bathwater? Nope. They just hunkered down and tried again. And this time, they flipped the script. Instead of trying to deny the horrors of apartheid or deflect criticism or even muddy the waters, the South African government got people to focus on life after apartheid. This would be how the government deflects blame on the shit it got up to, shit like Project Coast where they developed bioweapons to use against black people. If you don't know what I'm talking about, listen to episode 18. And I will quote from Rebecca Davies to explain what happens next. And I quote, in 1987, Reagan was approached by a group calling itself the Coalition on Southern Africa, a collection of respected Black religious ministers, Black businessmen, and Black academics. So far, so good when it came to sanctions, the group said. But enough was enough. What was necessary was to help Black South Africans prepare for a post-apartheid society by fostering business and educational links between Black Americans and Black South Africans. The group had trustworthy credentials. The religious figures were linked to, to denominations that actively opposed apartheid, and one, Reverend Gilbert Caldwell, had actually been arrested for protesting outside the South African embassy. Coalition members spoke out against further sanctions. They visited South Africa to distribute food, clothes, and books in the Alexandra Township, as well as in what may have been the beginning of her philanthropic interest in Africa, a check for $7,000 from one Oprah Winfrey. 
Their sanction stance raised some eyebrows in the American media, but other commentators noted that their emphasis on real human beings being affected by apartheid was commendable. Except it wasn't. Someone, we still don't know who, delivered a package to an interfaith advocacy center in New York. The package contained hundreds of pages of a document called the Neptune Strategy, a plan by a PR firm called Pagan International to develop a tax task force of activists to shift the conversation on South Africa away from divestment and towards post-apartheid life. Who had hired Pagan International? Shell. Yeah, the oil company had some pretty forceful reasons not to want to withdraw their business from South Africa. At the time, Shell's investment in the country totaled around $400 million, end quote. So the strategy of getting people to focus on life after apartheid was not only to get people to overlook the past, but also an attempt to shape the future, to ensure that the economic status quo of cheap and available black South African labor would remain even as the political, even as their political and social rights rose. And if you speak to South Africans today, particularly black ones, you will see just how effective the strategy was. Quoting now from a New Yorker article, and I quote, South Africa today is among the world's most unequal countries, the World Bank reported in March. Inequality has only worsened since apartheid formally ended, with the country's first majority rule election in 1994. Black education remains abysmal, while more than 70% of top management leaders in the private sector are white. Unemployment has hit 33%, the highest in South, in, in South African history and one of the highest in the world. Almost two-thirds of those under 35 are jobless. Even before the current unrest, the economy was deep into a recession. In a Gallup survey, 65% of South Africa's 60 million people reported that they had struggled to afford food over the past 12 months. Despite its vast natural resources, from gold and diamonds to titanium and uranium, South Africa still suffers electricity blackouts. Three decades after Mandela was freed, the racial, class, education, and, and economic divisions spawned by apartheid still define the country. The Mandela formula, if we can call it that, failed to deal with the series of issues linked to the country's political economy. In particular, the centuries-long question of white wealth and black poverty. Until and unless serious efforts are made to address this issue and its attendant features, the pattern of politics will be convulsion followed by impasse. Convulsion, impasse, etc. End quote. Put simply, the fall of apartheid did not remedy the way apartheid had fucked with the country's foundation. It kept the economic inequalities that benefited the capitalists and the people in power. And often, both of these groups of people were white. In essence, it kept the benefits of apartheid. So I guess you could say that the efforts of the apartheid government worked. Operation Blackwash was a success. Even though it did not allow for the continued existence of the South African apartheid state, it allowed for the preservation of its legacy. It allowed for the government and subsequent governments to successfully preserve the only consequence of apartheid that mattered. That is, the guaranteeing the low cost of black labor, guaranteeing its easy availability, and facilitating the expropriation of black economic productivity to subsidize white wealth. And to my mind, the fact that you have African-Americans aiding in this effort, especially when they knew better, 
is despicable. Um, they lived through segregation themselves and were at times living in a racist society that refused to grapple with its own racism. Those experiences, to my mind, should have cultivated empathy for suffering of others, but instead it didn't, and I don't know why. Um, going into this episode, I had hoped that I would be able to find a slam dunk argument that I could wave in the face of people like this, but that's not fair to them, their politics, and their capacity for thought and agency. Because they are, whether or not I agree with their reasons, they are justified in believing what they want to believe. I may disagree with it, but I, 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 I'm, I'm disagreeing with it based on my understanding of politics and, and my political perspective. Like perhaps for each of these gentlemen that we've discussed, for Hatcher, for Jurgen, for Parker, being a black person wasn't a part of their identity that they necessarily associated with, or that wasn't a part of their identity that like they really thought constituted their entire being. Um, so I don't know. I just, I think. What I want to say before we end is that, like, sh shit is complicated. And I really wish, I really wish I could, because I, I mean, I'm saying this, having been this person, like, two days ago. But, like, I really wish I could just write these people off wholesale. But that's, that's not fair to understanding them and also people like them. Um, but, I, again, I don't know. To me, their advocacy for apartheid is deeply confusing. It is like seeing a gazelle advocating on behalf of a lion. And I don't know what, I don't know how you can make sense of it. I just don't. Um, but to end, I will leave you with a question to ponder. What would it take for you to back your lion? What would it take for you to back somebody whose politics actively call for your oppression and subjugation? And before you say nothing, let me remind you that almost everyone has a price. You will not, you might not even be aware of what your price is right now. But I believe that everyone has a price. It might be high, but nevertheless, it is still there. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope that this was something you enjoyed. I will see y'all in a bit. Keep safe. Keep loving other people. Keep trying to understand them where they are. Um, but, you know, not at the expense of your mental health. Um, all right. Bye! Thank you so much for listening to the Utajua Hujui podcast with your girl Aileen. I have been so blessed to have you in our space. Yes, it is our space today. Thank you so much for listening to me and giving me your time of day. I truly appreciate it. If you want to reach out to me, please feel free to do so. My inbox is looking a little lonely. You can reach out to me on Instagram at U-T-A-J-U-A. H-U-J-U-I dot P-O-D that's at Utajua Hujui pod on Instagram reach out let me know what you liked about my episodes what you think I should improve on perhaps suggest new topics or new directions I should explore either way I would be so glad to continue this conversation with you on that medium and otherwise have a fantastic time and I really do want the best for you bye